Uh, good morning, everyone. So good to be with God's people in the Lord's house as we celebrate who he is and his goodness. I think we could have the house lights turned back up in the back. Just take a moment to give a greeting to all those joining us online. Thank you for being with us this morning. I can imagine you sitting where you are with your Bible open and joining us, and we're thankful for that. We'll look forward to studying the Word of God together. If you'd let us know that you're with us this morning, go ahead and call in the office this week and let us know that you've been with us this morning. I know we've been through a whole bunch of announcements, and so I'm just going to be brief. I want to just mention two important things. One is that we're going to be starting new connection groups, and sign-ups are going to begin even this week. Uh, connection group is an opportunity to get together with people from the church during the week. We study the scriptures. Oftentimes, we eat together. We pray for one another. We serve one another. And it's a good way for us to grow in our community, one with another, as we get involved. And so we're going to have a more lengthy announcement next week explaining connection groups and how you can get involved. But the second announcement I want to make is we're getting ready to have another baptism. And if you have not yet answered the Lord's call, have not yet responded to his command to follow him through the waters of baptism, now is the time. So come and see me this week or call the church office. Let's get together and arrange a baptism class. We're looking at doing this next one in a different way. We are looking constantly for ways to build fellowship and to do different things together. And so we're going to go outside somewhere, perhaps by a river, perhaps by a lake, and we're going to have an outdoor baptism service and church picnic. And so this is going to be in October. We can make plans accordingly. But if you hear the call to be baptized, let's get together and talk, and we'll look forward to having a great celebration coming next month. Well, the late, great David Livingston spent most of his life exploring the continent of Africa. He endured hardships, hunger, illness, and was determined to get to know the continent and to pave the way for further missionary service, though he himself was not a missionary, he was an explorer. He recorded many of his adventures in journals, which have been a treasure trove for historians to read and to study. He was a heroic man in England and, and during his time, and one time a missionary society wrote to him and asked, Have you found a good road? To where you are? If so, we want to know how to send other men to join you. Livingston wrote back, If you have men who will come only if they know that is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. He was looking for those who were committed, without condition, to coming and serving with him. Half-hearted commitment would be of no service to what he was doing. A similar idea is seen in a, an encounter that happened one day between a Christian minister and one of his parishioners. After the service, a woman asked her minister, what is your idea of consecration? Holding out a blank sheet of paper, the pastor replied, it is to sign your name at the bottom of this blank sheet and to let God fill it in as he wills. In both of these stories, the challenge is to be totally committed to the cause. Those who dip their toe in the water and then pull back are not useful in service. It is those who dive in who are useful 
committed, and who will ultimately bear fruit. As we arrive at our time in the study of the gospel according to Matthew, we come to chapter 8, where Jesus has just performed three miracles, overcoming the obstacles posed by ritual impurity, ethnicity, and gender. Three different people, each of whom was not qualified to enter into the full worship of God in Israel, are now welcomed by God because in Christ he is calling, saving, healing, and restoring people from all kinds of backgrounds. There is no one we saw last week, no matter the circumstances of their birth or life or career, who is beyond the reach of God's wonderful and powerfully saving grace. As part of his saving mission, Jesus bears the illnesses, diseases, sorrows, and pains of those he came to save. He lived for God, for fulfilling all righteousness, and died for the sin of his people. He arose victorious to show his victory over sin and its terrible effects. And as a result, in his ministry, he begins to roll back, push back, reverse the results of sin and rebellion. His saving power is applied to everything that was lost in Adam. And as the great redeemer, he will redeem all that was lost in Adam. Well, after this display of three miracles, in our passage today, Jesus is going to issue a challenge concerning the cost of following him as Lord and Savior. We're going to see a warning against responding too quickly, too impulsively, and a warning against responding too slowly in response to his command to follow him in the kingdom of heaven pathway that he has come to give. I think there's much for us to learn in these five short verses that we will look at this morning. And I invite you to stand once again as we read God's holy word, the passage that we will study today, Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22. And the holy and altogether lovely and fully inspired word of God says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. We've had a reading of God's word given to us by God the Holy Spirit. Receive it in the blessing for which it is intended. Please be seated. As you follow along in your sermon outline this morning and take notes, hopefully to share with a loved one during the week, we come to our first major point, which is Jesus calls for unconditional trust. Jesus calls for unconditional trust. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. As we might understand, a crowd is gathering around the Savior. Perhaps they've heard about his powerful displays of miracles. Perhaps they've heard about his powerful teaching. Perhaps they're just curious. Perhaps they're a little bored. They want to have some entertainment. But whatever the case, as we often see in the Gospel of Matthew, as the crowds gather around Jesus after he taught and preached and performed, he will have a reaction. And so it is here. Jesus, you recall, has begun his ministry in Capernaum, which would be his headquarters as he is ministering in Galilee. 
Capernaum is located on the Israelite side of the Sea of Galilee, the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And what's interesting is that in his itinerant ministry, Jesus goes back and forth across the lake from one side to the other of this famous sea. In fact, it makes an interesting study to see at what point Jesus decides it's time to move to the other side. The other side would have been what's called the Decapolis on the eastern side, composed of major cities that formed a legion, and they were primarily Gentiles. If you want to know what the geography today, the Decapolis would include the countries of Syria and Jordan today. And in my own service in the Middle East, I had the privilege of visiting several of the places that would have been part of what we know as the Decapolis. So the crowds are growing as they hear Jesus and they see his miracles. And so as the crowd is growing, I ask you a question, what would you do? Would you start a new ministry? Would you build a bigger sanctuary? Would you add a second service? Would you update your social media page? Now, Jesus often responds in ways that surprise us. In the Gospel of Matthew, it is often just at that point where the crowds are getting bigger that he pulls his disciples away from the crowd so that he can spend more time with with them. He knows that his priority is to prepare and equip them for future ministry after he goes back to the Father. And so he often removes them from the pressures of the crowds in order to help them resist temptation and also in order to teach them his proper nature as the Messiah who has come to fulfill the plan of God. Contrary to what we may be often tempted to do, Jesus is not afraid to thin out the crowds by showing the true nature of what it means to follow him. In some levels, he seems to prefer quality over quantity. And so in our passage this morning, we'll look at two men with different attitudes, different emotions, who will hear the demands that Jesus places upon discipleship. And they'll learn that to follow Jesus is to have a radical change of lifestyle. The kingdom way, the kingdom of God way that Jesus brings changes when we enter into it. How we think, how we act, how we plan, how we serve. Indeed, how we live. Following him will always come with a cost, but with great, even eternal benefits. It's sobering when we think about these two men, is that we're never told if either of them end up becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Let that sobering reality sink in as we consider and study this passage this morning, as we consider the first man where we see that he made an impulsive claim, an impulsive claim. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So Jesus is preparing to get his disciples out of the way. He's preparing to get them to a boat, to get them across the Sea of Galilee, to get to the other side. And a scribe comes up to him. And who are the scribes? Well, the scribes were the educated ones of the day. They were the ones who could read and write, which was not universally the case in the ancient world. A scribe was a teacher of the law. He was an expert in the teachings of the Old Testament, giving its interpretations and regulations. The scribes are often linked together with the chief priests and members of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the Jewish people in that day. And scribes would start out with a desire to teach by seeking another teacher to follow. In those days... It was the scribes or the disciples or the potential students who would seek out 
which rabbi to follow. They would seek out the best ones to follow them. They'd go and ask and say, can I follow you? And then they would stay with that rabbi until they'd finished their course of study. So they would compete for the attention of those well-connected experts in the synagogue or the experts in the law or those that were held in high honor for other religious leaders. After all, you wanted to be known as a disciple of Rabbi so-and-so. But the irony is that Jesus himself was not associated with any of those types of groups. After all, he's out in the wilderness. He's an itinerant preacher. He's in the desert. And here comes this scribe full of enthusiasm approaching Jesus and calling him teacher. Now that is what we would expect from a scribe. He would go up to his prospective rabbi, call him teacher. Can I be you follow, a follower? But you recall we said at the beginning when we started this study in the gospel according to Matthew that Matthew was writing to a particular audience, knew exactly the message that he had to give, the, fo the focus that he needed to give so they would understand who is this Jesus. And so the plot thickens then when we realize that in Matthew, the title teacher is only used by unbelievers when talking about Jesus. Thus, this man betrays his supposed desire to follow Jesus by his choice of title. He shows that he really doesn't understand who Jesus is as the Lord and Savior and the true Messiah. And yet with gusto, probably great enthusiasm, he says, I will follow you wherever you go. And so we might be tempted to think there's a conflict here because after all, does Jesus not command men to follow him? Does he not call them to follow him? So this would be a good thing, right? But Jesus knows what's in the heart of every person. And we'll see as he encounters people in the Gospel of Matthew that he puts his finger right on the spot that needs to be exposed in their heart, in their wrong thinking, in their rebellious attitudes. He knows that not all who claim allegiance to him actually belong to him. And we know that people can be enthusiastic in their response and yet not follow through. We'll have a painful example later in the Gospel of Matthew. Peter will hear about the sufferings of Jesus and say, Not me, Lord. I will be willing to die for you. And then in a very short time, denied three times he even knew him. We see it in the example of the life of the Apostle Paul, who had a, a fellow worker named Demas, who in one letter Paul says, I can count on Demas. He's faithful to me. And in another letter says, Demas abandoned me because he loved the world. People can come with enthusiastic claims. But is it really a commitment, an authentic desire to follow the one they claim they will follow? And so in response to this impulsive claim, Jesus offers a challenging condition. It seems that this man came up on his own initiative with his own agenda. And, and Jesus looks at his response and says it's a little bit hasty. It's impulsive. And so as we have seen again and again in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus reverses the order of things. He is the one who chooses. He is the one who calls. He is the one who commands. And when he does call, as Pastor David Platt reminds us, he is worthy of unconditional trust. So it is as if Jesus is saying, really? You say that you'll follow me wherever I go. And now Jesus is going to challenge that very assertion. And it's going to become clear that this man's expectations were not clearly laid out. It became clear that he did not consider the cost of following Jesus. It might be that he just wants another show and he wants to follow Jesus and see what's coming next in this interesting display of power and teaching that is going on. 
So Jesus reminds him, I'm an itinerant minister. I'm moving from place to place. I don't have a place that I can set down and call my own. He may have had irregular living patterns, even sleeping patterns. In fact, in the passage we're going to look at next week, in the midst of a terrible storm, Jesus is fast asleep. And that happens right as they get into the boat at the end of this story. And so what's going on in the life of Jesus? And so Jesus challenges this man and asks, in essence, do you know what you've signed up for? And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The foxes roam as they will during the day. They hunt their prey. They secretly sneak up and get what they need. But if ever there's a moment of danger, they have a hole they can skirt down into. Oh, it might not be that comfortable of accommodations, but it's a place to be protected. It's a place to get away from their own enemies. Birds fly around during the day looking for the food that they will give for themselves and for their young. They build their nests, but at night... They're safe and secure in their own nest, protected from their enemies. But in an amazing statement of divine condescension and humility, Jesus says he has no place to lay his head, which is an idiom used in that day to mean I have no place of my own. Think of it. The one through whom all things were made the one who is the very agent of creation, the one who in the words of the the writer of the letter of Hebrews upholds the universe by the word of his power, which means he upholds your life every moment of every day, says he has no place to call home in his itinerant ministry. The one who rules over all, who is showing his authority over all, and will show it more and more throughout the gospel of Matthew, lives in the insecurity of the current human condition of not even having a home to call his own. I'm struck by the humility of our Lord and what he would go through to come and live among us and live for us so we might live forever in the presence of God. Jesus is warning this man that to follow him is not the promise of a lifestyle of ease and comfort and financial prosperity. He's saying even animals have their places and in some ways have a more secure place and a better living provision Sorry, than I who have left the glories of heaven who have no place to lay my head. Imagine Jesus, the one who is the giver of all, depending on the mercy of others wherever he went, living out in full faith of the Father to take care of him under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's as if he's saying to this man, leave the securities of this life, the things that you think you need, the things that you must have, leave them for the insecurities of following me. Because it's ultimately in Christ that we're the most secure in any case. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in prison for his faith and his opposition to Adolf Hitler said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to the treasures and desires of this world so that you can find the true pleasures and treasures in Christ. It is possible and often the case that prosperity can be a blessing, the result of hard work and industry and God putting favor upon the work of our hands. But it is also the case that prosperity can be a trap. 
that entraps our hearts from being fully captured by the love and grace of God. So we need to watch over our hearts, take a good hard look at what we have, who we are, what we don't have, what we need, what really matters. Pavel Palos was exiled from Russia because of his Christian faith and resistance to the then communist regime. He came to the United States and after observing the life of Christians here, listen to what he said is the difference between living under tyranny and living in the United States. He says, in Russia, Christians are tested by hardship, but in America, you are tested by freedom. And testing by freedom is much harder. Nobody pressures you about your religion, so you relax and are not concentrated on Christ, on his teaching, how he wants you to live. We can learn from our brother who reminds us that it really is to live as Christ and to die as gain. But whatever we think we may give up to follow Christ pales in comparison to the blessings we have of walking in intimate fellowship with him. And so this first man, he rushed up to Jesus too quickly. He made a rash declaration that he would follow Jesus, but he neither counted the cost nor considered what it would involve. You can see false teachers come across your television screens that proclaim that to follow Jesus is to receive great rewards. Material stuff. But my friends, I'm here to say this morning that Jesus is the reward. Jesus is not the means to the end, whether prosperity or health or anything else. Jesus is the end. He is the goal. He is the culmination of all that is promised to us in Christ, in God. It's in Christ alone. So far from an impulsive decision of a man to follow Jesus, Jesus wants unconditional trust in his lordship, ability, and authority. As he calls and commands, follow me, for he says, I am the son of man. He says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So this is the first time we're coming across this title in the gospel of Matthew. And when Jesus uses this title, is it a reference to his humanity or is it a reference to his deity? We can start out by saying it's the most common name that Jesus uses when referring to himself. In fact, He's about the only one that uses this title when referring to himself in the, the Gospel of Matthew. He alone says, I am the Son of Man. On the one hand, Jesus does identify with men. So the title Son of Man would do that. He came to live with us, walk with us, eat with us, and enter into our sufferings and our weaknesses. But the Son of Man, as a title, had also taken on a strongly messianic and even divine meaning by the time of Christ. And he knows that he is that Messiah who has come to live with his people and suffer and die for them that he might rise from the dead and reign over their lives. So later in, in his life, as he's facing trial, he will refer to himself with boldness before the religious leaders of his day. I am the son of man riding on the clouds of heaven, using this vision from Daniel 7 to underscore his claim. They understood exactly what he was doing. He was making a claim to his own deity, and they put him to death over it. So as we come to this enigmatic term that we'll see again and again that Jesus uses, we'll have a chance to go deeper throughout the Gospel of Matthew, but initially I want to show how it is used three ways in the Gospel of Matthew. 
And that way it will help us to go deeper in our understanding of what Jesus is saying when he uses this title, I'm the Son of Man. So we're just going to pause briefly here to give a brief introduction to this idea, and it will return many times before we get to the end of this gospel. First, in the gospel of Matthew, the Son of Man can mean he is the humble forgiver of sinners. The humble forgiver of sinners. During his earthly sojourn, Jesus was the humble servant of the Lord who came to bring forgiveness. That was one of the signs of the new covenant, as promised in Jeremiah 31. And at least six times in Matthew, this is the meaning of the term, the Son of Man. I've listed some of the verses here, but not all. Perhaps this is something you can pursue in your own Bible study time. But it is certainly the meaning of chapter 9, verse 6, a passage that we will look at in a couple of weeks where Jesus said that he has the authority to forgive sins. So Jesus, as the Son of Man, it means he has the authority to forgive sins. Secondly, the Son of Man means he is the suffering servant. Again and again, Jesus talks about the upcoming trials, suffering, death, humiliation that he will suffer at the hands of the Jewish and Roman leaders. And he uses this title, the Son of Man. He can be as the suffering servant who came to be the atoning sacrifice for the redemption of his people. At least ten times it's used this way in the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll look at them as we move through as well. But thirdly, the title Son of Man can mean he is the future ruler. And on that wonderful day, a day of great expectation for all of the people of God, Jesus will return one day to exercise his full reign and authority over all things, reigning over the new heavens and the new earth. In the meantime, he reigns in heaven over the church and over the lives of those who confess him as Lord and Savior. And as he declares himself to be the Son of Man who will rule over all, as I've said, it's for that reason that he was put to death because he said, I'm God in the flesh. The title is used this way at least 14 times in the Gospel of Matthew. A key passage that we will look at eventually, and you can just write it down for future reference, is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. But in that dramatic prophetic scene, as, David is give, uh, as Daniel is given eyes to see, he sees the throne of heaven and the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, sitting on the throne. And he perceives and sees that one like the Son of Man is approaching the throne of God and receives from the Ancient of Days a kingdom and authority over all peoples, nations, and languages. Clearly, the Son of Man is a messianic figure, a divine figure, who receives from the hand of God himself a kingdom over which he will rule. Jesus claims that promise and that prophecy for himself, that he is the one who will ascend to the right hand of the Father and receive glory and be enthroned at his right hand as the priest for all who have been redeemed by his covenant. As I've said, this is the title that Jesus uses to refer to himself the most often. And there's some wisdom in it because this title, the Son of Man, would not have come with as much baggage or misconceptions by the people as, say, Son of God or Messiah. When the people heard the term Messiah, they had expectations that were different than what Jesus came to fulfill. When they heard the term Son of God, they had different understandings than what Jesus would give when he said he was the Son of God. And so it's fitting then because as he says, I am the Son of Man, it would cause people to stop and listen and say, wait, 
What does he mean? What is in this term, the Son of Man? Now, as I said, in weeks to come, if God should so be pleased, we'll have a chance to go deeper into our understanding of not only this gospel, but the use of that term, the Son of Man. But for now, we get back to our first man who came to Jesus with this impulsive reaction. And Jesus challenges him and says, in essence, I'm the Son of Man. Follow me to walk on the narrow path of suffering, of hardship and death. You think you're going to come and follow me for the benefits, but I can't promise you any physical amenities or blessings. You can only come if you will die to your own way of living and live for my way of living. Are you really able to walk with me and follow me? It's a good question for us to consider this morning. Have you come to Jesus with unconditional trust in him as Lord and Savior, forgiver of your sins, the master of your life? Have you said, yes, Lord, here's the blank page, my name on the bottom, do with my life what you will. So Jesus calls for unconditional trust. Secondly, Jesus calls for undivided commitment, undivided commitment. We're told that another disciple came to him, and at this point we need to understand that Disciple in the Gospels does not always mean a true believer because the way the word was used in that culture meant student. It meant follower. So not all those who followed Jesus because they were entertained by the crowds actually were followers of Jesus because they had entered into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here seeks to move a disciple in name to become a disciple in practice. And the first thing he says is that true obedience is immediate. True obedience is immediate. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Bury my father was one of those idioms that was popular in that culture. It, it referred to the expectations and responsibilities of the oldest son towards his father throughout his life and at the end of his life. And in those days in Israel, they would bury the bodies quickly of those that had passed away, usually within the same day with customs for mourning to follow that lasted several days afterwards. So to bury a father came with great responsibility, especially for the firstborn. We see that throughout the scriptures, the importance of properly burying the dead with honor and dignity. In fact, it was so important that you properly buried your father with dignity and the proper decorum that you could actually miss out on required religious activities. This was especially true even for the priests who could forego expected prayers or sacrifices or the prohibition from touching a dead body if it involved his own father. That would take priority over the religious customs of the day. And so there's something in what he says and how he says it that leads to the response of Jesus, which leads to conclude that this man's father was still alive. If he had just died, the father, the son would not have been with Jesus. Because of the urgency with which they took care of matters to bury one who had died, he would not have been here to say, let me go and do what I need to do, and I'll come back. It would mean, I'm going to stay faithful to my father until he dies, and then I will follow you. He says, I understand, I need to follow you, but I have human responsibilities that I have to carry out, and then when it's convenient, I will come and follow you. This would require a delay in what Jesus calls 
The great church father, Augustine, struggled with his sinful lifestyle before his conversion. He knew that he should not continue in the way. He knew that his mother, Monica, was praying for his conversion. And he knew that he should not continue in his lascivious way of living. But he was not so willing to give up the pleasures of his youth. And so he prayed, Lord, give me chastity and sexual continence, but not yet. He wanted to do it when it was convenient for him. You know, there are many who claim to be ready to follow Jesus when the right time comes, but they don't want to be inconvenienced just yet. They want to come on their own terms, in their own time, say, I'm going to do this and do this and do this and do this, and then I will give my life to Christ. But Jesus says we're to come to him on his terms and to walk in his way. Jesus operates in a way that would frustrate modern church marketers. Because Jesus is not afraid to let the crowds dwindle. He's not afraid to let people walk away because he knows what's at stake, the eternal destiny of men and women. And he knows what's truly important. And that in the light of eternity, in the light of the kingdom of heaven, his family, his divine family comes first. And so Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. If you talk to pastors, if you talk to those that have been in ministry or involved in any type of commitment in the local church or elsewhere, you'll hear a whole host of reasons about why people cannot give greater consecration to the Lord's work, whether locally, whether globally. Just in my own ministry, I've heard things like, well, I could never leave my mother. Oh, I'm just not ready yet. Oh, I just have to be near my kids and my grandkids. Oh, I'll follow the Lord, but first I need to go and sow some wild oats to get it out of my system. Oh, I need to build my career first. I need to build my fortune first. I need to get married first. I need to have my family first. And then when I'm retired and have more time, I'll be dedicated to the things of God. This man says, follow me. Or Jesus says to this man, follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus understands that we need to be committed to following him above all else. Because he is the one before whom we stand face to face in our final judgment. Therefore, when he calls, delayed obedience is really disobedience. Without flinching to the claim of this man, Jesus knows the customs of the culture of that day. But without flinching, he says, follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now Jesus is doing a play on words here. He knows that there are those who are spiritually alive and those who are spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead tend to only what they know. Yes, this is a tough word from the Lord. But you notice that Jesus never begs anyone to follow him. He commands and he expects obedience. Those who hear that call come to him and are saved. They follow him. They abide in him. They persevere in him till the end. Their hearts have been changed by the Spirit of God. They come to him willingly, joyfully, eagerly. That which they did not desire before, now they desire in all the more. Because Jesus is the true reward. But there are those who claim to have heard and yet who resist, who remain cold, who remain distant, who remain stubborn. Jesus says that the affairs and matters of this world can be taken care of by those who belong to this world. But only those who are in Christ, who are in the kingdom of heaven,
can take care of the affairs of the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus came, he made a claim that he deserves our highest allegiance, our highest honor, even above those closest to us. Because it is to Jesus himself that we owe our very life and existence. He alone is worthy of our undivided commitment. And so beware of divided loyalties. In a way that only he could, the late Baptist preacher Vance Havner said, a wife who is 85% faithful to her husband is not faithful at all. There is no such thing as part-time loyalty to Jesus Christ. The priority for the Christian is always to follow Jesus first. And that takes priority over all things. Remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then these things will be added to you. And so his command to follow me supersedes all other allegiances. He's the one who left the glories of heaven to come and live on this earth and die for us. And if he did that, he can certainly demand that we leave everything to follow him, knowing that he provides abundant spiritual blessing and intimacy and fellowship and hope for those who do. He says the kingdom of heaven is of such importance and such earnest urgency that not even basic family ties could get in its way. So Jesus goes against the natural customs and cultural expectations and the normal rhythms of life. It's a hard word, but he's the sovereign one. He deserves our undivided commitment. Does he have it? Thus far in Matthew, Jesus has shown us that he has authority. He has authority over the law, giving its proper intention and meaning and interpretation. He has already shown us that he has authority over disease and over demons. He'll continue to show that. Now he is making a claim that he has authority over your life and mine. We do not come to him on our terms. We obey and come to him on his terms. As Lord, as Savior, as Master and King, we're the needy ones, not him. We're the sinful ones, not him. We're the lost ones, not him. To quote Bonhoeffer again, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And those in Christ will follow him as Jesus separates the pretenders from the contenders. He is the one back in chapter 7 that said, Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do hear and those who walk will follow him. They'll be fruitful. They'll grow in him. They'll come in him never perfectly because their eyes are continually cast upon him who is the perfect and righteous one, all gracious and all loving. And they know that their true family is ultimately the family of God with whom they will spend eternity. And they know that ultimately it is better to do things God's way. And that ultimately, as Jesus makes a claim, it is better to respond with instant obedience as we listen to his call. Now next week, Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority over nature and his authority over demons as he continues on and showing who he is. But until that time, what are some lessons we may gain and take away from today's message? First, because Jesus took his disciples away from the crowds to teach them, we will prioritize spending time alone with him in prayer and study. 
that Jesus saw the need to pull his disciples away to spend time with him. We too need to recognize our need to be alone with him with our Bibles open and our hearts seeking. Because Jesus is the true treasure worth pursuing, we are ready to forsake all to know him more. We'll pour out everything we've done already at his feet. I think our heartfelt desire is that it would be things that are worthy to be poured out that will bring him glory and not simply stuff that would disappear in the refining fire of the last judgment. Because Jesus is Lord, we will respond to his call and command with immediate obedience. Jesus is going to teach on this again and again and again throughout the gospel. He calls, we respond. And because the family of Jesus is top priority, we will seek to serve him above all else in the church and in our lives. The ones that we will spend eternity with are those he has redeemed and will make us his eternal family that will be reflected then in the lives of those he calls and commands. As we take a couple moments before we sing our final song, I want you to take a moment just to reflect upon what Jesus says in this passage and what changes might need to be made, what sins might need to be confessed, what attitudes might need to be forsaken, what program changes might need to come in your life and in mine. So let's pray quietly for just a moment or two, and then I'll close as we prepare to sing our final hymn.